You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. 1 Samuel 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Take no more, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord, sorry, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guide the, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is in Luke. Luke 1. Luke 1, 46 to 56, and then we'll jump to 67 to 80. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you 
will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, you have done marvelous things, glorious things. Um, You haven't simply acted in such a way as to give us instructions on how to live. You haven't provided for us some sort of moral ladder to climb. You you haven't um, merely kind of made a way for us to have the right feelings or good feelings or better feelings or improved feelings. God, we, we believe and confess that you have acted decisively and objectively in history. That you have done something. You've accomplished something. Something that we could see. As John says, something that um, he, he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears and touched with his hands. That you actually stepped into history and acted decisively at Christmas. So God, I pray that we would believe as those who believe as firmly as the fact that we believe there's a tree in our front yard or there's grass in our backyard for some of us, that it's really there, that it's, it actually took place. It really has happened and its significance knows no end. So God, may we believe these things to be true and then, oh God, with Mary and Zechariah and Simeon, may we learn to sing to sing of what you have accomplished. In your name we pray, amen. I'm afraid that for many of us, Christmas has become or is in danger of becoming merely a decorative season. Um, It's a decorative season we like. It brings up certain colors. We can have more plaids, red plaids. We um, We can put a Christmas tree up and who doesn't like a lot of greenery in their living room? cover it with lights and who doesn't like little sparkly lights um, you can go to Costco usually starting in October and see every like they have a whole toy section it's not there any other time of year fun right um, you can go to Home Depot and have someone ring a bell and see a giant pack of trees in other words um, for, for many of us this season um, has become a primarily an aesthetic one a mood if you will Um, A mood that kind of lands on us sometime around Thanksgiving and evaporates on the 26th for most of us. Um, And what I want to contend for today is that Christmas should be, must be, Advent should be, must be, Epiphany should be, must be, um, actually a settled conviction, a confession of faith about the way that the world actually is. A confession and a belief that we must live out the implications of um, concerning um, the nature of God himself and what God has done. That, that through this season, the, the whole reason why we put up trees and we exchange gifts and we put lights everywhere, like everywhere. Um, the reason why we're going to gather in this room on Christmas Eve and light candles and sing songs and celebrate communion is not because God has revealed to us um, kind of a, a ladder of morality to climb, not because, almost broke something, 
Um, not because God has um, kind of made promises to us and we're, we're here to now kind of wait and see, um, but, but we actually believe and confess that God has acted decisively in the coming of Jesus. That, that something has, something cataclysmic has changed about the nature of the world at Christmas. The Christian religion is not a here's how to live religion. The Christian religion is not a here's how to have a, a better and healthier emotional life kind of religion. Um, the Christian religion is not um, a, a set of kind of um, abstracted Gnostic beliefs about some other universe out in the world somewhere. No, the Christian religion is a confession of faith about history. It makes historical claims about the nature of the world and what is, what is unfolded in actual history. Which is, by the way, what makes Christianity different than every other religion under the sun. Every other religion provides you with kind of a, a pathway to enlightenment or a pathway to morality or a pathway to salvation. Christianity at its root confesses something unimaginably glorious has actually taken place in history. God has come. So my prayer as we head into this final week of Advent and move into the season of Christmas, kind of punctuated by the, um, by, uh, by the epiphany, is that for all of us this week, Christmas would not merely be a mood. It would be for us a celebration, a confession of faith about something that is historical, something that is real, something that is profound beyond all imagining, and that we'd learn what it all means. Last week, um, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 and, and how the coming of Jesus is ultimately the end of all politics. There is no political wrangling for ultimate power. The, um, the heart of what Christmas confesses and believes is that Jesus has come as king, that his authority extends to all the nations of the earth and it will never end. So, so that all political power in all of the world throughout all of the ages is forever marginalized. All of it is simply subject to someone else. All prime ministers, all presidents, all congressmen, all Supreme Court justices, all governors, all mayors, all of them answer to Jesus. And so politics has come to an end. Politics is simply who gets to answer to Jesus in that particular role. Today we are going to look at a series of songs. Um, and we're going to ask the question, um, and if you're here today, and my voice changed dramatically just now, I feel more powerful. Um, if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, one of the most, most important historical questions you can ask is, what did they believe was taking place in the coming of Jesus in the first century? In fact, that's a really important question for all of us. I've already said this, I'm going to keep saying it, Christianity is a historical faith, not just that it's existed throughout history, but it actually is a confession about something that has taken place in history. 
We believe that, that God was incarnate in Jesus Christ. That actually took place. You could, I mean, if you happen to be at the right place at the right time, you could have laid eyes on God himself. Um, we actually believe that, that um, over the history of his life, that, that there was a real moment when Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, was crucified on, on behalf of the sins of the world. That you could actually go to a hill outside of Jerusalem. And if you happen to be there at the right day and the right time, you could have seen it. And what was taking place before your eyes was that the sins of the world were being dealt with, atoned for. God was dealing with the sins of his people decisively in that moment and you could have seen it. We can confess and believe that the resurrection is not merely an idea. It's not really kind of a, um, a kind of ambiguous hope about the future being brighter. Oh, no, we actually believe that it historically took place. So you could go to a particular garden, um, and if you'd been standing there at the right moment, you could have actually seen Jesus walk out of the tomb. You could have seen him walk around and speak and eat fish after he died. These things aren't merely kind of spiritual, religious ideas that exist in some sort of mythological world. Um, it is a confession of faith about history. We believe the same thing to be true about Christmas. And, and if that is true, then it's vitally important for us to know and to understand that the people who are eyewitnesses to these events, what did they believe was actually taking place? When Jesus comes, what did they think it meant? And one of the ways to get at what it all means is to look at songs. What, what did they sing about? Um, Luke records for us three songs. Song from Mary, song from Zechariah, and, and then in chapter two, um, which we didn't read, a song of Simeon. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're gonna talk more about her in just a moment. Um, she carries with her a kind of typology, uh, a symbolism for the church itself. And we're going to dive into that. It becomes really important um, both this morning and as we move into Christmas Eve and look at Revelation chapter 12. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the prophet who was sent to come and to prepare the way within Israel um, for the coming of the Lord in Jesus to redeem his people. And so Zechariah is the other singer. And then Simeon, all we know about Simeon is he's a faithful old man. He's a faithful old man longing for, hoping for, pining for the day when God would come to keep his promises and redeem Israel. And so we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's probably 14, maybe 15. And she sings this song. We have Zechariah, who all we know is that he's Old, like really old. Not like me old, but like some of you old. Like super old. So old, like how am I gonna have kids old? So God comes and sends Gabriel to speak to him and says, hey, you're going to have a son. Zechariah says, how in the world am I going to have a son? He's that old. However old that is, that's how old he was. And then we have Simeon, he's old as well. So we have a young girl betrothed to Joseph, probably 14 or 15 years of, old, years of age. Her song, and we're going to look particularly at her song and Zechariah's song to understand what is the meaning of this particular historical moment, the birth of Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas. A couple of 
couple of bits of information about Mary. Um, she is used throughout the scriptures, most notably in Revelation chapter 12, as a symbol, a type, um, a, uh, a picture of the church itself, the, the whole of the covenant people of God. And I will just say this, there has been, um, there are errors within the, the, the Roman church that, that elevate Mary to, to a place that she does not deserve to be, that she shouldn't be. Uh, but I do believe there's been an overreaction within Protestant evangelicalism um, to not honor her in the ways that she should be honored. I mean, she is the mother of Jesus. She is a sign and a type and, and an image for us of what the church is to be and um, the church that the covenant people of God has been. Um, and she is blessed among all women. And, and that should be acknowledged. Um, there are things to look for in her. She's no co-redemptrix, redemptress, I don't know how to say that word, but she doesn't stand alongside Jesus redeeming us. She is not to be worshiped, um, but she is to be looked to and learned from. And there is something glorious that we should learn from her, so, something that I pray that we would learn today. You see, Gabriel comes and speaks to her and promises her um, that God is going to come um, to her and that she will conceive a child and this child will be the fulfillment of all the promises of God, all the promises of God. And we know what she has in mind because of what um, the content of her song. But first, um, I want you to, before we get into the actual content of those promises, I want you to learn to listen to those promises the way Mary did. See, the promise is made that God is going to come, that he is going to redeem his people. And, and, and this angel comes to, to this young woman, this unmarried virgin. Um, she's betrothed, she's engaged, um, but she is a virgin and is told that you will conceive and give birth to a son. And this son will be the savior of his people. It will be the fulfillment of the very promises of God. And she hears these promises. She hears them even in its impossibility. And she believes them. And it's not kind of a mere idea of like, hey, we'll wait and see. It's a kind of belief that gives way to singing. It's a kind of belief that even in the face of um, enormous difficulties, I, I don't, I can't imagine how difficult it would be in this particular moment in history and this particular culture and society um, to be basically assumed to be an adulteress. But in the face of even that kind of difficulty, she sings, believing and receiving the promises of God. This is what the church is to be. Oh, may we learn from Mary even today to hear the promises of God, to see the promises of God fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And in the face of a whole society that seems at this moment to be denying that any of it is true, in the face of whatever difficulties you're particularly facing, whatever pain you're particularly feeling in this moment, that you would hear the promises of God spoken by the prophets and fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And may you believe them such that you sing. 
May you believe them such that you live differently. May you believe them such that you hope differently. So let's look at these songs, these promises that Mary believes are happening. And rather than work verse by verse through both the songs, I just want to draw out a handful of observations, um, point to them in both of the songs. You know, I'm not making it up. And, uh, and then my prayer is that we would learn from these songs how to be like Mary, who is a type for us. And so the first thing I, I want you to take note of is kind of interwoven through um, both of these songs is this sense that... Um, we have been waiting for this moment. Um, the, the, the coming of Jesus, the announcement of the coming of Jesus and the coming of John before him, um, that, that whatever these things mean, as we look at it, um, the, the other observations in just a minute, um, at the heart of it is a posture of waiting, anticipating, longing for this particular moment to unfold. In other words, there's something happening here that has been foreshadowed, that has been longed for, that has been sung about for centuries. Um, Let me show you where I see that. See in the terms of those who are hungry. We see it in terms of this mentioning particularly of David, of Abraham, of promises remembered, of mercy remembered. In other words, there were promises made that God has Remembered, and anytime in scripture you see God remembering something, it's not as though he forgot it. Um, that's not how remembering um, for God works in scripture. Um, but what it means for, for God in scripture, when he remembers something, so uh, the, the immediate reference that comes to mind is in the book of Exodus. Uh, um, God remembers his people. He remembers his promises given to Abraham. Um, and what that means is he begins to act decisively um, to redeem his people who are enslaved in Egypt, and he begins to act decisively to keep and fulfill his promises made to Abraham. You see, when God remembers something, it's not primarily a cognitive um, description in scripture. It is primarily a a moment that that, he has decided that now will be the moment he acts. He he brings to pass the things that he is now remembering. Um, And so when you have in these texts, these two songs, um, the remembrance, verse 54, the remembrance of his mercy or the remembrance of the promises given to Abraham um, or or these uh, these promises, this horn of salvation, this exaltation of someone who would come from the house of David. Um, what is, what's going on here is not that God kind of like just forgot. He got into a TV show and then forgot to take out the trash um, or forgot that the bread was in the oven. It's that, um, no, he has now come to bring about and to fulfill those promises. So the coming of Jesus is something that has been longed for, has been hoped for, um, that, that people have been waiting for for a very, very long time. Something that's rooted in history. It's tied to Abraham and to David. Promises of God redeeming his people, remembering mercy, glorious mercy given. Um, it is uh, the connection even to longing, the, the idea of that after darkness has come, light. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Um, this phrase is an interesting phrase because uh, generally in the Old Testament, those who sit in darkness, it's also in the New Testament, um, is referring specifically to the nations. 
And so here is a promise that in the coming of Jesus, this promise made and foreshadowed in the Old Testament, um, now revealed and fulfilled in Jesus as those who have sit in darkness, the nations outside of Israel who had no light, on them light will come. So the first observation is here is a long-awaited moment, this historical moment, this objective, real moment. Not just a cute manger scene, but something that has actually taken place in history. It was a moment that had been waited for for a very, very long time. A moment that had been sung about and anticipated. A moment that some had despaired would ever come. Some who had said, like, it might even be relevant if it comes. I'm just going to live my life however I do. If it happens, it happens. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of that particular moment. Second, there is something unfolding in the coming of Jesus that can only be described as the overturning of the entire world. Everything is getting flipped upside down. Um, One of the interesting things that happens, particularly in Isaiah and the book of Daniel, um, is they describe the coming of Jesus. They describe this moment and they use language that that it's almost incomprehensible to us. Um, Isaiah will literally talk about stars falling from the sky. Um, Peter takes up this language um, in preparation for the destruction of Jerusalem um, when he talks about um, the the earth itself being burned up and and the stars and the moon falling out of the sky. But when Isaiah speaks of the, um, the moon and the stars falling from the sky, he's not talking about real stars suddenly falling down to earth. But what he's describing um, uh, is this image that occurs throughout the Old Testament where um, stars and moon, heavenly bodies, um, symbolize kind of the order of the world, the system that runs the world. And so uh, Isaiah will talk about the fall of Babylon as stars collapsing. Um, He's not saying that stars are literally going to collapse. He's saying that those who rule Babylon and its whole system, its whole empire, as it runs the world, is going to completely and absolutely collapse. And they describe the coming of Jesus as this moment in history um, when the the whole world as it is known will be flipped upside down, um, that the stars will collapse, that um, the way that the world is ordered, um, those who've exalted themselves and been proud, um, those who seem to have all the power, all the blessing, all the authority will be cast down, and those who seem to be crushed will be exalted and lifted up. So you see that reversal First in verse 51 to 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. It's important to keep in mind where Mary lives, kind of the social and economic conditions that she's living in. Um, we, we talked about this actually last May during, during our series on justice. I remember and we talked about the difference between the economy around Judea and Jerusalem and the economy um, up in Galilee. I mean, think of Galilee, it was kind of a, a poor, not kind of, it was a poor region, but it was up and coming. Here was this kind of major trade route that began to kind of uh, began to pour its way kind of through Galilee to get over back um, between the east and the west in Rome. Um, and so what the, the economy of Galilee was largely driven by um, entrepreneurs, people starting businesses. 
Um, if you'll remember, as we talked about Jesus and Joseph, uh, they probably were, in fact, the word used to describe their vocation. Um, um, you shouldn't think of them as simple carp- carpenters kind of making uh, their kind of wooden toys in their basement. Um, they, they were more like contractors. The, the, the language user is they worked with stone and with wood. And in that area, all kinds of cities and towns were being built. The, the, the massive construction project of the day was the temple. Um, and so you have actually in, in history, Jesus himself probably helped to construct the temple, which is actually what he was promised to do, that he would be the temple builder. Um, and so you have that economy happening up north. And, and so it was kind of um, the Wild West. It was entrepreneurial. It was business, people starting businesses, engaging in trade and with those going between Rome and the east and back and forth. Um, and so that's kind of what's happening um, in that part of the country. Judea and Jerusalem was very, very different. Judea and Jerusalem, um, it was built, all, all of the, the entire economy there was built on taxation, loan sharks, and bureaucracy. In other words, what you had happening in the South was um, deep corruption. And it was corruption that, 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 was, uh, that was held in place by those in power. And, and so there you had the temple authorities, you had the Roman government, you had the Jerusalem authorities uh, who, who were tied in with the Roman government, um, giving land to their friends and to their family, um, using kind of their power, their wealth, and, and, and the way that they would manipulate the law to take land from the poor, to trap the poor into to slavery and debt. You had an entire economy built in the South uh, around those with power, the mighty destroying the poor. Um, The mighty destroying the humble. The mighty um, building up their own power, building up their own wealth, uh, building up their own authority by putting their foot on the neck um, uh, of really small landowners um, in, in the area of Judea manipulating the law to take from them um, so that they might become more wealthy and so that they might become more powerful. It's actually interesting in um, the ministry of Jesus. One of the, um, was kind of, it, it struck me as just stunning in April. It was like the most obvious observation in the world, but something I'd never seen in my life is that when Jesus is in Galilee, he never says a single negative word about wealth. When he goes into Judea, he never says a single positive thing about wealth. And Jesus talked about wealth a lot. But when he goes to Judea and he's around the people who have wealth in Judea, all of them got their wealth by being dishonest. All of them got their wealth by oppressing the poor. All of them got their wealth by using their power to exalt themselves, um, to be, they were the proud, the mighty, the ones who put themselves above and beyond everyone. And so when he's there, he denounces wealth severely. Um, But when he's in the north, he he never speaks ill of wealth. And so as Mary, as Mary begins to sing this song, she announces in that world, a day has come when the mighty will be cast down and the poor will have plenty of good things. And when those who are hungry We'll have something to eat. The world as it existed, which seemed to be just sealed up, like it was never going to change. That world is being turned upside down in the coming of Jesus. And it is God's mighty arm. The, the language here is militant. 
You see, God doesn't just come to kind of change the economy. He comes making war, bearing his arm, fighting against the mighty, fighting against those who would exalt themselves, fighting against those who would oppress the poor, fighting against those who would exalt themselves to keep others in check. He comes as the war-making God. Look with me at verse 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah here, um, uh, you, you might um, forgive uh, Paul because I think Paul borrowed this, this imagery that the coming of Jesus is though um, we've been living at night and, and, and day has come. The sun has actually begun to rise. In other words, the whole world is being turned upside down. Um, the, the, the whole world is changing. Um, the way things have always been are getting um, absolutely turned on their heads. God is coming to conquer his enemies. He's coming to put down the proud. He's coming to destroy the wicked. He's coming to, 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 to absolutely conquer all those who would exalt themselves. And light is dawning in a season that has only known darkness. Third observation that this is the, the fulfillment of, it is the coming of the renewal of God's covenant people. Um, Mary, a uh, number of scholars have, have noted that Mary draws heavily on Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter one. It was our Old Testament reading today. Um, but there are echoes of Hannah's song running kind of throughout Mary's song. That she's drawing heavily on what's going on with Hannah. And what was going on with Hannah? Um, I don't know how many of you uh, can get there during your Bible reading plan, but you always get to Judges, and the end of Judges is like, wow, this is really bad. It's like the, one of those places you get to in Scripture, and you go, this is horrific and terrible. Everyone's doing right in their own eyes. People are getting killed and torn apart, and their body parts sent to different parts of the nation. I mean, it's one of the darkest places in all of Scripture. Um, Israel has been settled in the land. There is no king. They're ruled by judges. But that there is this continuous cycle in judges that ends at the very, very bottom of the people of Israel rebelling against God, worshiping idols, um, sacrificing their children, um, re rebelling against the law of God, refusing to acknowledge God and obey God's law and order their society according to how God has commanded them to, um, and just diving after wickedness and evil and darkness. So the end of Judges, the, 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 historically, it's, the, it's what opens up right before 1 Samuel. You have darkness, absolute darkness, covering the land. And then you turn to 1 Samuel, and right off the bat, you have Hannah pleading with God to give her a son. Hannah, a barren woman. And that through this son, Israel would be renewed. Through this son, the covenant people of God and the covenant promises of God would be restored to the people of God and to their children, to their generations. Mary draws upon this and we see her drawing our attention to the covenant promises of God. So verses 50 to 55, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. See in verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, here is the promises of God coming to fulfillment for a particular people and for their children. 
God works covenantally. He makes promises to us and to our children. And so as you sit in this room, the promises of God, the redemption of God, um, the action that takes place at Christmas, that we acknowledge and celebrate taking place at Christmas is not just for you individually. It is for you and for your children to be passed down from generation to generation to generation, that they would, that you would hear the promises of God, that you would believe the promises of God, that you'd live in light of the promises of God, and that you would speak those promises to your children and train them up as they seek to obey and live in light of those promises, that they, believing those promises, would raise their children to hear those promises and to believe those promises and to live in light of those promises so that those children would hear those promises, receive those promises, believe those promises, and train their children to live in the light of those promises. Mary believes that what God is doing in Jesus is something that will be passed down from generation to generation. And that we should hear those promises and our children should hear those promises and our grandchildren should hear those promises, believe those promises and obey those promises. And then last, verse 54 and verse 57. At the center of what's taking place at Christmas is the renewal, the coming of God's mercy. Verse 54, Mary says this, and he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Remembrance, again, is not merely a cognitive issue. It's not that God forgot his mercy and now he's gonna, oh yeah, I was supposed to be merciful. Let me come and be merciful. Um, Remembrance means he is now, in this moment, in the coming of Jesus, enacting his mercy. Mercy has come. The shape that it takes. Look with me at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is glorious. You see, we confess that God comes and he comes to crush the proud. But who among us is not proud? But we confess that God comes and he comes to exalt the lowly and to put down the mighty. Who of us in this room does not presume to be mighty? Who of us this week has not sought to exalt ourselves, maybe our own authority, maybe our own pride, maybe our own name, maybe our own ambitions? You see, for the proud and for the mighty, for those who forget the law of God, for those who refuse to obey the law of God, who refuse to live in light of the law of God, the coming of God is not good news. It's terrible news. We live in a society that is drunk on the exaltation of the self. On the need to make much of me. The top of my latte. Everyone should see it and like it. To make much of me and the discovery of myself and um, self-help and self-healing and self-care to make much of me, that the government exists to meet my needs and bring about my salvation. But we live in a society in which the exaltation of the self and the, um, the, 
the establishment, the presumption even, the arrogant presumption even, that we are the mighty, the proud. And in that kind of world, the coming of a God who comes to put down the proud and to exalt the humble. The coming of a God who, who, who comes to make much of his name forever and ever and ever. A, a God who comes that, that we would take joy in and marvel at for all of eternity, the glory, the beauty, the supremacy of Jesus. That, that, we would, um, that he comes to raise up a people that will sing forever and ever and ever, not of their own excellencies, not of their, um, how much they love themselves, but to sing forever of the glory and the beauty and the and to marvel at what God has accomplished in Jesus, um, to come into a society like ours, obsessed with the self, enslaved to the self. The coming of this God is terrible news unless, unless in his coming is mercy and the forgiveness of sins. But what if his coming to make you forget yourself in the light of his beauty, is not judgment, but mercy. What, what if putting down the proud is a kindness? It, it can be because of the forgiveness of sins. You see, the coming of Jesus is the coming of mercy. It is the coming of forgiveness. It is the putting down of the proud, of the self-obsessed, of the selfie-obsessed, of the personal fulfillment and actualization. It's the end of all of that. And it is a mercy, it is a kindness. So here's where we'll end. This, this announcement, this song, is not about a new religious way it's not about a new set of kind of religious philosophies. It's not a moral ladder given to us to climb. It is an announcement of what God has done in the coming of Jesus. And you see the Christian faith, and particularly the Christian faith now at this Christmas. And I say this for all of you who here are here who would claim to be Christians, for all who are here who wouldn't claim to be Christians. Um, I, I pray that those particular of you who aren't Christians um, would understand what Christianity is. My prayer for you is you would become as one of us, believing these things, trusting these things, singing these things. But I don't want you to do it because you think it's a moral ladder. I don't want you to do it because you think it's merely a kind of religious philosophy. I want you to do it because you believe in the historical claims of Christianity that something actually has taken place. And for those of you who are Christians, for those of you in this room who've forgotten Christianity is not just a set of ideals. It's not merely a set of ideas. It is a claim about what has taken place in the world that Jesus Christ has come, that the wicked are being now cast down. They are cast down in Jesus. Um, that, that the proud, the mighty, those who exalt themselves are cast down, are put down in Jesus Christ. Whether it's a government official or somebody running a company or, or an abusive husband um, or just a wicked neighbor, um, that these, um, these who exalt themselves, who make much of themselves in Jesus are cast down. That you would believe these things, that you would trust these things, that you would learn to sing these things from Mary, that in the coming of Jesus, the world has been flipped upside down. 
The old world has ended. A new world has come. The hungry are being fed. The corrupt and powerful are overthrown. God is even now conquering his enemies, defending his people, remembering his mercy. That as you look at your children, you see that God even now is keeping his promises from generation to generation. That in the coming of Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven. That we would learn from Mary to look at the coming of Jesus and to believe these things to be so, historically so, objectively so. And that believing these things to be true, that we would obey them, that we'd live in light of them. And most of all, that we would feast and sing in the light of the promises of God fulfilled in the coming of this baby. Let's pray. So Father, we confess, and oh God, may we believe everything has changed. The wicked are judged and condemned. The righteous are raised up. Your holy arm is borne against your enemies. And grace and mercy is remembered and poured out on all who believe. Light shines now in the darkness. The enemy has been bound. And the nations belong to Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. God, may we hear these things and in celebrating the coming of Jesus, may we believe them to be historically and objectively true. May we receive these promises. May we believe these promises. May we pass these promises down to our children and to our children's children and our children's children's children. And may they believe them and obey them. In your name we pray, amen.